Well, we're in Exodus 31 again this morning. Last Sunday, we were in the first half of the chapter of Exodus Exodus 31 and looking at God's appointment of the craftsmen needed for the construction of the tabernacle. And that led us to consider similarities between their work and our own, between their calling and our own, between their craftsmanship and whatever kind of craftsmanship we might be up to in our various lives. In other words, we talked about the nobility and even the divine assignment of work. Only briefly, though, did we talk about how work can be misused and abused. We said briefly, work can be neglected through idleness, and work can be idolized and hence be overly consuming. Well, the second half of Exodus 31 helps us to think through the limits to our work. It helps us see when we should work and not work and why. There's a reason for the rhythm of work and rest that is extremely practical. We've probably felt it this week that we're not God, we're not omnipotent, we're not all-knowing, we're not self-sufficient. Besides, we were made for both labor and leisure, but the reasons for A rhythm of work and rest in this life are not merely practical. There are also theological reasons. Theological reasons which extend to our worship of God, which extend to our salvation in God, and even our eternal rest one day if we're in Christ. In the book of Exodus, and really throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this rhythm of work and rest can be summarized in a word, Sabbath, or the Hebrew word behind it, Shabbat. It means to cease, to stop. That's what God called the prescribed day of rest on the seventh day here in the book of Exodus. He called it a Sabbath. And if you've been with us in our study of the book of Exodus, you know that this is not the first time in chapter 31 that God has mentioned Sabbath. Exodus 31 is, in fact, the culminating treatment of the Sabbath after at least three previous references to it in chapters 16 and 20 and 23. And so I want to read all four of those Sabbath texts for us today, starting with Exodus 16. Turn there if you have a Bible. Exodus 16. And here we're picking up in the story of God's provision of the Israelites as they traveled toward Sinai. And God, remember, provided manna, that miracle food from heaven. And he told them to gather twice as much on the sixth day because manna wouldn't be coming on the seventh day. That was a Sabbath day for their rest. So look look at verse 22 of Exodus 16. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, 
eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now turn to chapter 20, where we find the Ten Commandments, the fourth of which is the longest, and it concerns the Sabbath. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now turn to chapter 23, where we get just a brief word in passing about the Sabbath. In verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman, and the alien may be refreshed. And now chapter 31, our passage for today, culmination of these Sabbath texts in the book of Exodus, verse 12, and the Lord said to Moses, you are able to you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Well, there's a lot there. I think four headings will help us categorize our thoughts. The first heading would be the institution of the Sabbath, the institution of it. Where did it come from? Well, obviously, it came from God. God is the one speaking here. God is the one revealing here. God is the one explaining this concept of a six and one work week. Six days of work, one day of rest. But just leave aside that idea of Sabbath for a minute and think of just the word work or the concept, sorry, the word week and the concept of a week. Seven days. And then it starts over. Where do we get this idea of a week? Well, it's actually fairly uncontroversial and undebated that the week 
came from the Bible. That it came, in our terms, from God. You see, all other measurements of time are based on something lunar. L-U-N-A-R. A day, of course, is one rotation of the earth. A month is roughly one rotation of the moon around the earth. We have 12 of those in a year. And a year, of course, is how long it takes for the earth to, to go around the sun. So days, months, years, all marked out by something lunar, but not weeks. There's no scientific basis for a seven-day reoccurring process or measurement of time. There's no historical explanation for it. It's not like the Israelites got it from their neighbors around them. No, the, the first source of this is the Bible. It comes from the Bible. It comes from God. And it goes back to the creation account of Genesis 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Well, twice in our passages in Exodus, that Genesis 2 account is picked up on and used as the basis for this new codification, this new commandment, this new packaging of the Sabbath command. Now that's not to say that everything that's said about the Sabbath in Exodus was known fully by Adam and Eve from day one. No, Exodus 31 clearly connects the Sabbath to a covenant that Adam and Eve surely didn't know in their day. Exodus 31 clearly explains some at least according to the biblical text some previously unmentioned consequences and threats for violating the Sabbath. So we shouldn't smuggle all that Exodus says about the Sabbath into the creation count of Genesis 2, but obviously there is some sort of connection between God's seventh day rest in creation and what is prescribed here in Exodus. They were to rest because God rested. God didn't rest, of course, because he needed rest. It's not that the six days of creation were so grueling for the omnipotent God that on the seventh day he really needed a breather. No, he rested to lead the way and to show a pattern for us to follow, a pattern that would flow all the way through the Bible. But why? Why a Sabbath? Why seven and one? Well, secondly, let's consider the reasons for the Sabbath, the reasons for it. Let's think about the reasons for it in its original historical context of Exodus and, and really Genesis as well. We've said already there's the practicality of it all. We're not God. We're finite. We need rest. We need refreshment. That's another word that's used. Chapter 23, verse 12. It's for our refreshment. The word Sabbath, as I said, means to stop, to, to cease. That word rest and the Hebrew word behind it that we find in most English translations, it literally means to drop, to release, to let go. This is what it's for. That's why later prophets like Isaiah, chapter 58 of Isaiah, there God through his prophet bemoaned that the people had 
turned this Sabbath into drudgery, not a delight. And so from that angle, it's a gift from God. It's kind of him. It's not all gift, as we shall see. There are threats. There are warnings. There is trouble if we don't do it. But it is still to be delight and a gift from God for people who need it. It's also a lesson in trusting him. Just like manna, that miraculous divine provision of bread in the wilderness where the people had to trust God for its provision on a daily basis. So the Sabbath was a weekly lesson. It was a test case, you could say, in trusting God. Would they put down their tools on the seventh day, or would they keep going? The nations around them would have seven days for their productivity. Seven days to make, seven days to sell, seven days to create. But would the Israelites trust their God with the seventh day? Let me just pause here in in case you might be distracted by the fact that most of us here in America who work a full-time job, we work five days and we have two off. So don't, don't wonder whether the Bible has ever commanded people to do six days in the office in one day off at home, and and we're really, you know, sort of slackers here in America today, or for you to think that we're actually doing pretty good with the rest part of it because the Bible says six and one, and we're doing five and two, and maybe someday we'll get to, you know, France's level, and we'll do four and three. All that misses the point. The work isn't just your job. It isn't just your employment. The work that God wants his people to cease from is all their work, at least for once a day per week. Everything was to stop. Everything was to be released. Everything was to let go, be let go of, as an expression of trusting God. And hence, the later prophets confront this very reality as Israel went astray. They went astray in part by begrudging God's limitations upon their work in the Sabbath. So in the days of Amos, the people had been complaining to God like this. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? Will they trust God even when The nations around them work all seven days. Another reason for the Sabbath then emerges, and it's that Israel was to be distinct, set apart by God. They were to be different among the nations, different in their food laws and different in this Sabbath practice that would stand out. And God was sending a message to the rest of the world that he had set his special love and salvation upon these people, and through them, he was going to bless the whole world eventually in their Messiah, or through their Messiah. And so all this is a a sign of the covenant then. The Sabbath is a sign of the covenant. In verse 13 and verse 17 of chapter 31 of Exodus God calls it a sign of the covenant. And so like a rainbow functioned as a sign for the covenant that God made with Noah, that God wouldn't any longer, in the future, he would never destroy the earth by way of flood. And just like God gave that sign of circumcision to Abraham regarding his covenant 
that through his seed the blessing of the world would come. So this was a sign, the Sabbath was a sign for the Mosaic Covenant. God had given them other ways of remembering who he is, what he's done, and that he has made covenant with them. He'd given them very various feasts. He'd given them various sacrifices. All these were to remember who God is, what he's done, that he's in covenant with them. And this was a weekly reminder of the covenant he made with them, the Sabbath. Which leads to another reason for the Sabbath, worship. Yeah, it's for their rest, yes. It's so that they trust God, yes. But it's also to worship God. Verse 14, it is holy for you. Verse 15, it is holy to the Lord. In chapter 35, verse 2, it is a solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Yes, all of life is to be worship in a sense. And that's why even in Old Testament days, King David can say to God, seven times a day I praise you. Not just even once a day, seven times. And really not just seven because in Hebrew poetry, seven is a, a number for completeness. So what David really means there is, I praise you all day long, all the time. But the Sabbath, one day in the week, was to be fully devoted to praising God. All distraction was to be removed. Focus was fully on God. And there's another reason for God giving the Sabbath in the book of Exodus like this. And I think it's hinted at at least. Hinted at in the severity of the punishment that God spells out for those who will disobey the Sabbath. Or break the Sabbath. It's in verse 14 and 15 of Exodus 31. Whoever profanes it will be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that person will be cut off from his people. You work six days, not the seventh. That's for the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Now, what is this? What's going on here? And why death as the punishment for violating the Sabbath? And if we read on in the story, we're not going to be any more encouraged by this law and this threat actually playing itself out in real life. So listen to Numbers 15. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man, one of their own, gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation then brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Again, we say, why? We not only have the warning in Exodus, but we have the actual enforcement of it in Numbers 15. And one might callously respond, well, the wages of sin is death, right? Well, we learned that in Sunday school class at a young age as kids. You sin, you die. The payment for sin is death. Well, that is true. 
But don't miss that God has made provision for sin in these days. And that's what the last half dozen of chapters in Exodus have all been about. God's presence among his people made possible by way of tabernacle, priesthood, and substitutionary sacrifice for their sins. So here we have no mention of that. You violate the Sabbath, you go straight to jail. (laughs) That is dead jail. Worse than jail. Again, we say, why? Well, dare I say it, but I don't think the Old Testament gives us much of an explanation for that question until we get to Jesus. I don't think we get satisfactory explanation about these issues until the New Testament. It's not that God owes us a satisfactory explanation. Uh, There are plenty of mysteries in the Bible that carry through from Old Testament through the New Testament. But, But from the New Testament, I think we can piece together an explanation about the seriousness of the Sabbath and the severity of the punishment for violating the Sabbath. Which leads thirdly to the fulfillment of the Sabbath. That's what we find in the new covenant, in the coming of Jesus. The fulfillment of the Sabbath. Let me try to summarize the New Testament's teaching on the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And then I'll show you it from specific texts. Here's the summary of what the Bible says on these issues. Jesus is the embodiment and fulfillment of of that Old Testament Sabbath. He is the rest that we truly and eternally need. His work provides what we need and we simply rest in it. And the message that is sent out into the world is that they simply give up trying. Give up trying to earn their way to God. The gospel is an invitation for you to give up whatever mechanism you had in place to try to get God to look your way to accept you. Whatever world religion you were using, whatever try harderness you were doing, whatever grit and determination you put into it, all that must be renounced and you must rest in Jesus' finished work alone. We talked about that last week. Jesus came to work. He worked. He came to do his father's business. He came to do his father's will, to do his father's work. And that work led him squarely to the cross in Jerusalem that fateful Friday. And it was from that cross, before he breathed his last, he exclaimed, It is finished. It is finished. The work was finished. Hebrews tells us that having made the atoning sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. He sat down because it was finished. So we must ask ourselves at this point, are we trying to work our way to God, or have we renounced that and come to rest in Christ's work for us? Are we trusting even in Some sticks worth of our own righteousness like that man in Numbers 15. Trying to just get a little bit done on the Sabbath. 
well, it was deadly for him, it'd be deadly for us to cling to a stick's worth of our own righteousness rather than cling to and rest in and trust in Christ's righteousness alone. If you're not a Christian, I wonder, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of the grit? Aren't you tired of the work? Aren't you tired of trying, trying, trying again? Aren't you tired of the, of the self-pep talks that you got to stop doing this? I mean it this time. i got to stop doing this. I really need to do better. I really should get back to church. And maybe that's why some of you are here today. That's it. I'm turning over a leaf. I'm going to go back to church. I'm going to try to follow God again. Or maybe you're just tr- tired of trying to soothe your guilty conscience, trying to cover however you feel about your broken relationship about, with God. Well, if you feel like you're coming to the end of your rope, spiritually speaking, then you're actually in a better place than you were when you felt good about yourself. You might be ready to hear Jesus say, as he did in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, if you think you're not heavy laden, no problems, I got this. Well, you're not ready for Jesus' giant welcome mat just yet. But if you feel like you've been trying, you're weary, you're worn out, then here he says, come to me. I will give you rest. You can imagine Jewish folk in those days hearing rest, Sabbath. The bells would go off, right? Is Jesus saying he's the rest? The capital R, rest, the Sabbath? When you come to see that, you come to appreciate a passage like in Luke 18 where Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, two very different men, but both praying at the temple at the same time. And the Pharisee's prayer is kind of self-sufficient. He's thanking God, yes, but thanking God that he's not like that guy. Thanking God that he doesn't do what he does. Thanking God that he fasts twice a day or twice a week or whatever. He gives He does what's right. Thank you, God, I'm like that and not like that. But the tax collector couldn't even look up to heaven. With his head bowed, he beat on his chest, and he simply prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said it was the latter who went home justified that day, not the former. The one who doesn't look righteous is the one who was righteous before God, the one who seems righteous in the eyes of others is self-righteous, which is no righteousness at all. The Apostle Paul can talk like this in Romans 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's how it works with your job. You work, you get a paycheck. You got a paycheck because you worked. But it's different with gospel economy. Verse 5 of Romans 4, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
You could be justified or declared righteous by God, not on account of your own righteousness, but on account of Christ's righteousness received through faith. In faith alone, God justifies the ungodly. Paul can speak in Philippians 3 about the fact that before Christ, if anyone had reason to consider what they've done to be of worth before God, he could more so. And they list all his religious credentials. But he says, in Christ, he has come to count them as rubbish, as dung. And he says, I do that to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law and from the doing, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So where do you stand with this? What are you trusting in? What are you resting in? What are you counting on? What are you banking on? If you're resting in yourself, if you're resting in some religion that bids you to climb up the mountain to get to God in your own strength or even partly in your own strength, you're on a different mountain. You won't make it to God. Today, you can begin to trust Christ and rest in him for good. It could be as simple as you wording the very words that that tax collector worded in the parable of Luke 18. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, what does that mean for the Sabbath commandment then, today, now, in these New Testament times? Well, Colossians 2 gives us the classic text on this, verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, that's Old Testament dietary laws, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now notice those three kinds of events, festivals, new moons, Sabbath. Festivals were yearly, new moons were monthly, and Sabbaths, well, there were other kinds of Sabbaths besides the weekly Sabbath, but clearly the weekly Sabbath is what's in view here. You can see the progression, yearly, monthly, weekly. You see it in passages like Ezekiel 45 and Hosea 2, where these three kinds of calendar categories are mentioned, and clearly it's the weekly Sabbath that's in view in those passages. So what does that mean then for the weekly Sabbath of Exodus 20 and 23 and 31 and following? Not to mention the other matters of the Jewish calendar or the Old Testament food laws. What does it mean? Well, those things were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The shadow had its purpose. It said something more is coming. I've used this illustration many times before, but maybe it's worth it in case you haven't heard it. You think of shadow and substance and the difference of those things in our own experience. Imagine being in a house and seeing in a doorway a shadow coming near. And you might even be able to tell from the shadow whether it's your wife or your two-year-old. Either way, you're excited. But once they step into the doorway and we see the substance of the person, that's what we were excited about. No one hugs the shadow. 
No one talks to the shadow when the substance is there. The shadow had its purpose and it was good. It made us smile. But the substance has come and the shadow is no more. Hebrews 3 and 4 takes pains to unpack for us the contemporary significance of this theme of Sabbath or rest. The writer of Hebrews here doesn't go to Exodus to talk about the weekly Sabbath, but he goes to the days of Joshua when the people were about to enter the promised land and there God said they would have rest or peace from conflict and war. Well, the writer of Hebrews asks, if the people got their rest in Joshua's day, then why centuries later does Psalm 95 say, today, today, if you hear his voice, today do not harden your heart. Enter into his rest. The writer of Hebrews insists that that today of Psalm 95 is still today. The writer of Hebrews insists that that today of Psalm 95 is still today. It's present tense. And so if there's a today, today you may enter into his rest. You must enter into his rest. There remains a rest for us to enter in. But it's not the Old Testament weekly Sabbath. Neither is it the peace of the promised land that came after the days of Joshua. So what I just did there was summarize parts of Hebrews 3 and 4. And now here's the the culmination, verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. You see, the theme of rest or Sabbath was a kind of salvation metaphor. It was a lesson, a life lesson, a living lesson, perfected and fulfilled and embodied in Christ who is our rest. And that's why the commandment was so strict in Exodus. And that's why the punishment was so severe in Exodus. Because the gospel message can't be monkeyed with It can't send a different message than the true one. And that's why Moses, later on in Numbers 20, when God tells him to strike the rock with his stick, that water might come out of it, and he strikes it twice out of anger. That's why there are such severe consequences. He will not enter the promised land now, that thing he's been waiting for and working for for over 40 years Because God is jealous to protect his theological pictures and illustrations here. The Apostle Paul can say, Christ was that rock. And Christ was struck once in the cross, not twice. Moses messed with the the metaphor, even unknowingly but it had serious consequences. So again, what are you trusting in? Christian, what are you trusting in? We rest, and we keep resting. That doesn't mean we don't do any work in the Christian life, but as far as our salvation goes and what we're trusting in and what we would claim before God when we stand before him on a day of judgment, we can rest in nothing less. We can 
rest in nothing better than all that Christ is and all that he's done. By the way, this shift from Old Testament to New Testament also included a shift in the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, further clarifying for us that this is a big deal. We not only have the statements in Colossians 2 and Hebrews 4, but we just have this little phrase floating around the New Testament, like in Acts 20, when the Ephesian church gathered on the first day of the week, Sunday. They gather together as a church on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul instructs the Corinthians to take up a special offering when they meet on the first day of the week. We call that church, people. We call that Sunday. That's the first day of the week. Something changed. What changed was the resurrection. You read through the gospel accounts, and each one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at the end, they all talk about the resurrection of Jesus happening on the first day of the week. And if you say, well, that's when it happened, what else would they say? Yeah, but in the Greek, they, they use a very funny and unusual syntax and word order. It doesn't look weird in our English Bibles, but there in the Greek, you look at this phrase and you say, that's basically saying something like the Sabbath plus one. Why would you call it the Sabbath plus one? Why not call it a day? Why not call it the first day? They didn't. Because clearly they were drawing attention to the significance of this moment. They were specializing it and codifying it. It was not another day. It was the first day of the week, the Resurrection Sunday, or what the Apostle John would later call in Revelation 1, the Lord's Day. B.B. Warfield, the old Princeton theologian, he said, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him, that resurrection morn. If you suspect right now that I might be starting to contradict myself, having on the one hand spoke of, having spoken of the, the Sabbath being fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the Sabbath. We rest in him on a daily, even moment-by-moment moment basis. And then I'm also now talking about Sunday for the church being the Lord's Day. It's when the church gathers. It's a special day. Well, that leads us then to this final heading, what we might call work, rest, and worship today. Here I want to try to put it together and put it on the lowest shelf possible in case you missed any of this. There is a rhythm of work and rest that goes back to creation, to Genesis 2. It is biblical, it is wise, it is needed. And some of us here this morning need to not overlook that most basic creational lesson. There is to be a rhythm of work and rest. God did it. God showed it. We should follow his lead. Some of you might have work and rest out of some healthy, normal, God-given relationship. Maybe too much rest, maybe too much work. The latter seems more common in our culture today. But know this, that the Old Testament Sabbath, like we see in Exodus takes advantage of that creation principle in Genesis 2, but repackages it in a covenant context. 
And that covenant context has added specificity and new strictness to the principle because it was meant to portray something greater than the Sabbath itself, something greater than our everyday normal need for rest. Of course, as we saw, Christ embodies and fulfills that Sabbath rest. And so every day and every moment, we are to rest in him for our salvation. We don't rest in him only on Saturday or on Sunday. The New Testament doesn't renew the Sabbath law and simply switch the day from Saturday to Sunday. We don't find a Sabbath commandment reissued in the New Testament. And yet, not every day is the same kind of day in the New Testament for the Christian. There's the Lord's Day. There's the celebration of the resurrection, which happens every first day of the week. And so while not every Christian agrees on what I'm talking about here, some of you here might think that it's okay to, it's okay to think Sunday is a day of rest and you don't. You don't wash your car on a Sunday. You don't work hard for a meal on a Sunday. If you think that, you can still be in fellowship here. We can disagree on that. Even Paul in Romans 14 can say, uh, some think one day is more important than the others. Others think every day is the same. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. But wherever you stand on this, know this, that when Paul wrote that some see all days alike, he must have been thinking in terms of just work and rest, not so much worship, because Paul was not merely an all-days-alike kind of guy. He was also a first-day-of-the-week guy. That was his practice, to gather with the saints for the worship of the Lord in celebration of his resurrection. That's what he did in Ephesus. That's what he assumed the Corinthians would do. And that's why he told them to take up an offering when they got together as they did. So I bring this to a close this morning by asking you to consider the priority of the Lord's day in your life, in, in your family, in your schedule, in your commitments. It might be due for a, a self-checkup here. Or if you think you need help, man, talk to a, what you perceive to be a more mature Christian friend and Ask him some hard questions. Ask him to speak into your life. But begin with this. Start with yourself. Ask yourself, what is the first day of the week for you? Monday? I'm thankful that here in America, at least, you, you buy a calendar and the day off to the left is Sunday. That's the first day of the week. That's what God put in creation. This is the rhythm He's given us. This is the rhythm of the new covenant. This is the rhythm that we have born out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many of us forget that. If you forget the last five, six sentences of what I just said, perhaps you'd be honest enough to ask yourself this. What is Sunday for you? What is it? I mean, is, is Sunday the day when the NFL is on? Praise God. Starting in one more week, right? Is it one week? 
I, I like watching the NFL. I hope my Sunday isn't defined by that. Is Sunday the day that the kids might have a practice or a game? I don't know. Let's check the schedule and we'll see if we can squeeze in church. Is Sunday the day where you get just a few more things done before Monday hits and a new work week begins? Or is it your last chance on a Sunday morning to sleep in is Sunday your last chance? Saturday's housework, Sunday lounging. And I love lounging on Sunday afternoon. But I, I love what we've done here this morning as a church more. I want you to love it more with me. I want us to grow together in that as a church. I want us to ask ourselves hard questions about what, what what is priority? What is non-negotiable? Is meeting together with the church something we do when there isn't something better to do? I don't know about you, but I, myself, I, I can't go long without meeting with you and hearing from God's word and singing together. I'm not spiritual enough. A friend of mine, Rick Phillips, he, he says, well, you can't desert the faith very well or very quickly in six days. So you just keep going to church. Just keep going. I often say to my wife, hey, we've been married this long. Let's keep going. Let's just keep going. We're not talking about divorce, but it's just my funny way of saying, that's our secret to marriage, honey. We're just going to keep going. We'll just keep going. What about our kids? What will our kids assume about God, about the risen Christ, about the church that he purchased with his own precious blood based on the priorities they see and we lead them in? D.A. Carson has suggested that what one generation cherishes, if the next generation merely assumes it, the third generation will likely outright deny it. Meet with the saints for the good of your kids and for your grandchildren. This is scary stuff. It, it might be a necessary and good wake-up call for some here today. And yet it's the gospel that should be our primary motivation here. If you feel like I got out a stick and you felt a little whipped by some things I've said here at the end, well, just remember this, that Christ is the Sabbath who invites us in. He invites those who are weary and heavy laden. And he invites those who have misprioritized sports and schedules and recreation and all that. And he says, come, come. I will give you rest. And he gives you rest in part through people. We get this from Hebrews 10, and I close with this. Notice there, there are some things in Hebrews 10 here which give us the basis, and then other things that show us what we should do in light of that basis. It says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
Let us draw near to him with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stir up love and good works in each other. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, the day of Christ, drawing near. On account of the full access you have as a Christian to the throne room of God, on account of Jesus as your great high priest, draw near. Encourage each other. Hold fast the confession. And don't neglect meeting together where we encourage each other and hold fast our confession together. Let's pray for God's help. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing mercy. We thank you for your work in which we find our rest. We long for the day when we will finally fully and forever rest in you in a new heaven and new earth. No more sweat, no more tears, no more hurt, no more pain, no more curse-filled labor, but meaningful labor in you in a whole new creation. We long for that day and for that rest. Until then, Lord, give us just a little bit more rest, more of yourself. It is sweet to trust in you, Lord Jesus. And may that be so as we sing that sweet old song once again. Amen.